Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by one of Britain's most popular physics experts, Jim Al-Khalili. And in conversation with the science broadcaster, Helen Chersky, they discuss the world according to physics. From what the study of energy and force, matter and its motion can teach us about the universe and the nature of reality itself. It's a really fascinating conversation that demystifies a lot of the phrases you hear in modern physics from quantum theory, relativity and thermodynamics. If you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Jim's book in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this event. I hope you're all ready for the next hour. We are, we're going to be covering a lot of stuff, I've got to warn you. But, of course, we are here to spend an hour with the excellent Professor Jim Al-Khalidi, who is a professor of physics at the University of Surrey. I'm sure you'll know his voice. He's one of the best-known voices of science in Britain. He presents The Life Scientific on BBC Radio 4, and you'll have seen him on TV, I'm sure, uh, doing lots of things, explaining lots of different areas of physics. And he's also, he writes a lot. It's very impressive. He's written The House of Wisdom, How Arabic Science Saved Ancient Knowledge, a book called Quantum, A Guide for the Perplexed. And I think if you're not perplexed, uh, you probably haven't got the quantum thing. And the book and some others, and we, the book we're going to talk about today is this one here. It is The World According to It's very shiny in the light, isn't it? I like that. The World According to Physics. And it's quite a small book, but it is a bit like the TARDIS. It's got all sorts of things hidden inside it. And there's quantum mechanics and relativity and thermodynamics and then lots of quantum things, quantum computers and cameras and all kinds of stuff. And there's a quote in there um, that Jim has said that the universe isn't mysterious. There are just things in it that we don't yet understand. So this is our step towards understanding some of those things. We're going to get started. We're going to set the scene here. And Jim, thank you for joining us. It's lovely to see you, at least virtually. How are you doing? It's, it's great to be here. Yeah, I'm doing not, not too badly. It's um, I always feel a bit guilty saying, you know, people say, oh, how is it treating you? I say, oh, I'm getting a bit fed up. But I know, you know, I'm lucky. I can carry on doing the physics that I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my broadcasting, my writing, my lecturing, uh, supervising my research students, all from my office here at home. So I'm coping pretty well. And I know a lot of people aren't. I shouldn't complain. You remind me, actually. So I remember doing, I can't remember what the event we were doing were, but it was in, in London. And I walked out afterwards in the crowd and we'd both been on stage. And I was just listening, you know, I wasn't really listening, but I heard a voice behind me and they were talking about you. And they were saying, I think, I can't remember how they... They, they came to it, but they were talking about, you know, oh, he must work very hard because you've been talking about theoretical aspects of physics. And the other one said, no, nah, I reckon he does reckon he does most of his work in the bath. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so that's, well, that's the thing. Yeah. Theoretical <laughs> physics. You can do a lot of thinking. I, I tend to sort of get my best ideas last thing at night just as I'm falling asleep. 
the trick is remembering it in the morning. Uh, these, these these are the challenges of physics. Well, so I want to start off with the idea of um, physics, physics being counterintuitive because, and you say in the book, and I think this is very true, that there's a lot of weird ideas in physics and everyone else goes, oh, that's a bit weird. And physicists just kind of live with it, right? We sort of get used to these weird things and it's almost like an ability to live in two worlds, that there's a common sense world and then there's this weird world of physics. Do you notice yourself living in those two worlds? How do, they overla- how do you deal with these ideas that are just weird? I think for a theoretical physicist, it's, it's in a sense easier because we can detach ourselves from the, from the real world and, and bury ourselves in the maths. And so the maths is logical. Maths is precise. It's... it's um, it's not weird. You know, there's an equation or there's an integral that you have to solve. It might describe a really counterintuitive concept in the real world. And if you had to try and explain what it means, that, that's where the weirdness is. But, you know, we, we, we take solace and comfort in the fact that we can focus on the maths and, and, and that all makes sense. It's when you try and then transfer it and say, does the universe really behave according to these Greek symbols? Ah, well, that, that then becomes, you know, the narrative explaining what the symbols mean. That can be the harder part. And we should probably say for the audience here that some of the things we're going to discuss, there's some big ideas. So don't worry if you don't follow everything. Jim is clearly amazing at explaining these things. But I think that even with that in a short book, and a short interview, it's okay if you don't understand everything. But hopefully you will get the flavour of what's going on. Now, Jim, in the, book, in the book, you do something that I think is very valuable. You set out these three pillars of physics. There's quantum mechanics and relativity. And most people kind of go, oh, OK, those are the two bits of physics. But you add the third one, which is thermodynamics. So could you very briefly just run us through what those three are and why it is that thermodynamics is the underappreciated third pillar? OK, well, thermodynamics is, is the oldest of those three pillars. I mean, I guess in a sense, there is a, a fourth pillar, which is most of the physics that we learn at school, which is what we now call classical mechanics, N- Newton's physics. So all the stuff about bouncing balls, rolling down slopes, springs, forces and momentum and kinetic energy and all that business, that's all Newtonian mechanics. Obviously, that was developed uh, a lot earlier. Thermodynamics was developed in the 19th century, and it's really uh, about the, the, the nature of heat and energy. It brings in a, a subject called statistical mechanics. So people, if they think back to their school days, certainly those who maybe have done A-level physics, not everyone would have done A-level physics, but something called kinetic theory. So we try to understand what does pressure or temperature mean? And you say, well, it's to do with vibrations of molecules of a gas, for example. Thermodynamics is also about the idea that things can run out of energy things can run out of useful energy things unwind they decay something we call entropy the a measure of the disorder and and thermodynamics gives us a direction to time because it says things get older you know the the, the milk it stirs into the coffee it doesn't unstir easily uh, you know the cracked egg can't reassemble itself all, all that business so there's a direction to time so thermodynamics was known to be very very uh, uh, important but at the beginning of the 20th century we had this this you know two revolutions one in uh, the world of the very small which uh, uh, gave us quantum mechanics to describe the nature of atoms and it showed that atoms behave and interact with each other very differently from the way our everyday objects interact which is newtonian or classical mechanics around about the same time beginning of the 20th century einstein develops his two theories of relativity which is to do with the the very large, the very fast. It's sort of on a much grander scale. 
And in a sense, because quantum mechanics and relativity was were, were so revolutionary, they, they so overturned our ideas. And Einstein's work basically replaced Newton in, in a sense. It was more accurate, more precise, took things to a deeper level. That we we forgot about thermodynamics. It became sort of a bit of a, the, the poor relation. And many physicists, even today, who are working at the forefront of you know f- trying to answer the the, the big questions the mysteries that still remain about the universe they talk about how do we bring quantum mechanics and einstein's relativity together how do we combine them to give us a theory of everything and what i was trying to get across in the book is that we're not going to get a theory of everything just from quantum mechanics and relativity we also need this third let you know don't forget about thermodynamics guys even einstein there's a famous quote of his which i mean i can't remember it exactly but he says basically Quantum mechanics, you know, may be incomplete, may be wrong. Relativity may one day be replaced. But the second law of thermodynamics, the law that says things decay and unwind and get older, that's never going to be overthrown. So somehow it's more fundamental. Uh, and so I was trying to bring in that, you know, in order to, 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 to really get to that ultimate sort of nature of reality, we need all three together to combine it. We don't know how to do it. But I think we need to combine all three to get a unified theory. I think I think it's great because I, I feel a lot of it is to do with people sort of there's a fetish, a fetish for the exotic. You know, quantum mechanics is all a bit weird and exotic and general relativity is all a bit weird and exotic. And thermodynamics came from steam engines. You know, if you go back in the history of thermodynamics, what they were doing was trying to understand. You know, and it all becomes about cycles of heat and work and it's all very prosaic. Yeah. And it's just, you know, not very sexy, is <laughs> well, it? it? It sort of is now. Thermodynamic, because people are trying to combine thermodynamics with Einstein's general theory of relativity. So there's there's something called the black hole information paradox. Stephen Hawking was working on this right to the end of his life. Uh, and the idea of, you know, the thermodynamics of black holes and black holes, you know, collapsed stars is where Einstein's theory of relativity really comes into play. So there... There's the, you know, at the forefront, there's a combination of thermodynamics and relativity. I'm working in an area called quantum thermodynamics. So that's bringing thermodynamics and quantum mechanics. But no one knows yet how to bring all three of them together. So that's the big challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's 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 take a step back to quantum mechanics itself. Just just because I think it's there's a good example of a question that comes to a lot of this kind of physics. And, you know. When sort of particle physics, for example, we, we're told there's this zoo of, you know, we have the standard model, there's this zoo of particles and, well, it's, it's kind of a zoo and not a zoo. You know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a grid and there's these particles. And then they go, oh, but all of our world is just made up of electrons and quarks. And the other weird ones are kind of there and the physicists get very excited about all these other weird particles. And I think the response of a lot of people is, well, those weird ones, I mean, do they matter? Do we need to know about them? Are they actually doing anything in the universe? Or are they, do they just, is it just that when we poke the universe with our colliders, they, they're dragged into existence and then they disappear mm. off again and the universe carries on? Yeah, in a sense, if we want to describe, you know, what we're all made of, you know, I make this point in the book, actually, we all, you know, the whole world we see is just made of two kinds of particles, quarks and electrons. That's it. And there's two flavours of quarks, up quarks and down quarks. They make up the protons and neutrons, which themselves make up the the nuclei of atoms. And then around them, you've got electrons and 
everything's made of atoms. Atoms make molecules, molecules make stuff, right? So, so if you break down everything you see around, you just get down to the very, very simple constituents. But you're right, physicists do say, no, you know, that's just, you know, one family of particles. There's all these other categories. There's the particles that control the forces between the other particles, for example. It, they're important. It's true. They don't. Most of the particles, the particles zoo, what we call the standard model of particle physics, have very short lifetimes. You know, they they just have a fleeting existence. But they're important in order to to, to enable us to understand how matter and energy interact and all fits together. You know, in order to get a picture. A, a unification of the forces of of, of 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 different types of matter we do need the full set you know um, and uh, even though you know some of the other more exotic flavors of quarks top quarks and bottom quarks and charm and strange they don't live very long but they play a hugely important role if we're trying to get uh, get to a unified theory of everything we we need them it's good. I guess it's good to know everything that's in the toolbox. You never know when it might be useful for something. Exactly. exactly. I mean, for example, <laughs> we don't know what dark matter is made of. It might be made of, of a new kind of particle. You know, that particle may not exist very long. It may be very hard to detect. But we do need to find out all the building blocks that make up the whole universe. And, and we sort of feel we're not quite there yet. We're on the way. So... One of the things that is very you talk you do talk about in your your book and it's a little bit unusual is is philosophy because on you know you especially with quantum mechanics you go back to the early nineteen twenties and you know they're discussing these big ideas and there's a lot of philosophy built into those discussions because it is there is a lot of what does this mean but you know I did a physics degree you did a physics degree I don't know if you were ever taught philosophy no, as part no. of your physics degree but I certainly wasn't so what's the role of philosophy in physics now do we do we need it is it a luxury where, where does that fit in I think it's a lot of physicists are coming around to the idea certainly at the sort of the frontiers fundamental physics that philosophy is important they've they've been physicists i mean even stephen hawking and, and he was saying this just to, to wind people up because that's what stephen hawking did you know he, he just enjoyed you know just getting people's backs up but he was he and others would say things like oh philosophy is dead you know we don't need philosophers physicists are, are answering all the important questions my view is that yes i think it needs physics it needs science to answer the questions but philosophy is about asking those questions Physicists might want to look for the answers. Philosophers compose the, the, the questions we need to ask. And if you look back at the the, the, the pioneers of, of modern physics, 20, early 20th century, you know, Einstein and, and Niels Bohr and Heisenberg and Schrodinger, these guys did study philosophy, philosophy of science um, as part of their, their education. And they did understand, you know, the, the, you know the, the nature of reality at a deeper level and could, could compose the right questions to ask. And to some extent, we've forgotten that now. And I think we're getting to the point where we do need sort of philosophical ideas about what is the nature of reality. Quantum mechanics is a good example. It's the most successful theory, I would argue, in all of science, you know, we have friends, you know, um, mutual friends like Adam Rutherford that you know very well, who who gets very annoyed when I say, you know, quantum mechanics is the most important theory in science. He says, no, no, it's not. It's Darwinian theory of natural selection. So physicists and biologists have this. This he's this. so easy to wind up, isn't it? Really, <laughs> he is very, so easy. I enjoy doing it. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. <laughs> 
But quantum mechanics, you know, if we look at, I mean, here we are talking over, over the internet, using laptops and computers, we use smartphones. Most of the technology, the electronics that we use today is thanks to quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics isn't just this crazy idea about atoms being in two places at once that physicists like to, you know, try and enthuse people about. Quantum mechanics really gives us modern day technology. So it's important, it's precise, it's powerful, but we still don't know what it actually means, what is actually going on. You know, in all, in science, normally we have a, certainly in, in theoretical physics, we have the mathematical description, equations. We then have to have the narrative, the, 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 the story, the, the um, translation of what those symbols, those equations mean in the real world. And all theories have to have that, the interpretation of that theory. Quantum mechanics is the only theory, I think, in all of science that seems to have somehow got away with it. It doesn't need a unique interpretation. And, and to the extent that physicists will say, oh, don't worry, don't worry about explaining what it all means. Just use it. Just use the equations. They work. Look, look at all the wonderful, shiny technology quantum mechanics has allowed us to develop. And I think we're getting to the point now where we do feel that quantum mechanics we need to find the interpretation of quantum mechanics and even that in itself is a philosophical issue because we can't even agree on whether that is necessary my stance about science is i'm I'm what's called a science realist so i believe there's a real world out there and we have to describe it and our theories of physics are about getting as close as possible to some ultimate truth about the nature of reality. It's there. We may never reach it, but it's there and we, want, and we need to find it. And I think in order to do that, it's tied in with trying to bring quantum mechanics, relativity and thermodynamics together, a theory of everything. We need to have the right interpretation of the mathematics. And for that, we need, I think, the help of philosophers. So, you know, my philosophy friends will be very pleased that I've said this, but I do genuinely mean it. I don't think physicists can tackle these deep questions now at the forefront of our field alone. We need the help of philosophers as well. Well, I think you said at the end of the book that this debate about the interpretation of quantum mechanics, you know, whether you need it and what it might be, is the thing that bugs you almost yeah. more than anything else, yeah. that it's bothering you, that we, we have all these nice, we have these tools, but we've no idea, like you know, what, 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 are they, what do they really describe? Yeah. What's behind them? And it, it seems to bother you. Does, do you wake up in the morning and get yeah, yeah. cross about that? Yeah, it does. <laughs> I mean, I, it shouldn't do because, you know, I was, I was trained, you know, in when I was taught quantum mechanics, I was trained in a, the traditional way, which is what's called the Copenhagen view. All the textbooks of quantum mechanics describe a way of, of explaining the mathematics, which allows us not to worry about it too much. But... I think most physicists, if they think about it, they'll say, well, you know, even though I use the equations of quantum mechanics and they work and they're very powerful, I I don't let that slow me down. When I'm away from the calculations, I do worry about it. And, and, you know, I've had that that concern ever since my my student days. What does it all mean? You know, and I, I don't have... And the answer to it, I know there's half a dozen different ways of explaining, you know, there's things called the many worlds interpretation, there there are parallel universes in which all options play out. That's one way of explaining it. There are other explanations to to, do with them, some quantum field that pervades all of space and connecting everything instantaneously. Their interpretations involve signaling back in time. There's all sorts of weird, each one of them is, you know, does my head in right 
But one of them has I'm to so be right. I'm so glad to hear yeah, you oh, say that. But one of them has to be right. Do my it does everyone's head. <laughs> and I think physicists who say, no, I'm not bothered by it, are either fooling themselves or they've, or then, I don't know. You know, they, I'm certainly my, you know, my, my PhD advisors were, you know, were puzzled why it would concern me so much. You know, why, why are you worried about the nature of an electron? An electron is an electron is an electron. Don't worry about whether it's a particle or a wave. It's an electron. Look, there's the equation that describes it. I said, oh, well, that's not enough. <laughs> so, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it leads on to because it's connect, We're going to sort of we, we haven't got time to cover everything that's in your book, but you know, you do talk about these, the idea of a grand unified theory and theories that are behind everything. And the problem, my problem with a lot of the things in that field, which I don't, don't know nearly as well as you, is the lack of a falsifiable hypothesis like there's all these like you know and it's almost like imagine someone plays you know a piece of music and but you can only hear the tuba right and there's an orchestra out there this is i'm making this up but you know there's an orchestra out there and you can imagine any orchestra you like it could be full of dolphins with clarinets but well, all you hear is the tuba and you can go oh well i can imagine there's lots of dolphins and clarinets and the problem is unless you can see a dolphin with a clarinet it's just, you know, and that's a very crude analogy, but it feels like that, that, that there is this tendency to go, oh, there's all these things. And and I'm pragmatic like you, I guess. I'm like, well, well show me some evidence or at least, you know, yeah. don't just invent things yeah, yeah. <laughs> that can't be tested. <laughs> I, I, I think I sort of straddle both, both, both sides of this argument. Certainly, you know, I come, my research background is from nuclear physics. So uh, as a theoretical nuclear physicist, what I'm trying to do is develop mathematical models that describe the behavior of atomic nuclei. Now, luckily for theoretical nuclear physicists, we have experimental nuclear physicists who can carry out the experiments to study those nuclei in accelerators. You know, what happens if you collide these two nuclei together? How do they break up? How do they scatter? How do they get excited and give off alpha, beta, gamma radiation? And and we can de- f- compare our theories with experiments. And, and, and if they're falsifiable, we say, oh, well, that theory's wrong. Ditch it, because this is what reality tells me. But then there are other physicists who work in something like cosmology or string theory. Are they are of the type that you just described? That they they come up with theories which we don't yet know how to test. So so they they're fanciful, and and many people say, well, that's just pretty maths. That's that's not that doesn't describe the real world. You know, mathematicians. That's what mathematicians do. They say we don't care about the real universe. Look at my lovely equations. It might or might not describe the real world. I don't care. I'm a mathematician, but I don't think we should give up on some of these ideas. I think what we should do is try harder to find ways of testing and falsifying these ideas. We don't. We don't not do them. We just have to be more imaginative about how to test them. So towards the end of the book, you sort of move on to the future a bit and you talk about the potential for some of these technologies, which is always, you know, the, the, the um, I nearly said navel gazing bit then, but not that crystal ball gazing. <laughs> different, well, different you know, we, yeah, we do both. <laughs> um, is always the hard bit, but you you talk in the very in very optimistic terms about some of these words that we're starting to hear, like quantum computers and quantum other things. There's plenty of quantum other things, and and I haven't heard someone before be quite so specific about some of the things that they think. Not just the quantum computers, but the other potential for quantum. I think you describe a quantum camera which can see something behind the thing it's looking mm. at, for example. What where's all of that going? Where do you just very briefly? Where do you see all of that going? Well, I you know the twentieth century was all about developing technologies that are based on ideas from quantum mechanics. So we wouldn't have understood semiconductors and therefore wouldn't have developed silicon chips were it not for 
the rules of quantum mechanics and, and the way electrons move and, 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 and the things called quantum tunneling, for example. And, and so most of modern electronics is based on standard quantum mechanics, but there are the more counterintuitive ideas in quantum mechanics, quantum entanglement, the idea that two separated particles are instantaneously somehow connected. Those ideas are now be- being put into practice in a new generation of technologies, what we call quantum technologies now, and certainly there's a lot of research around the world developing these quantum technologies, do rely on much more exotic, much more weird and wacky ideas that are still part of quantum mechanics, but we're now developing them into something useful like quantum computers, quantum cryptography, quantum teleportation, quantum sensors. So these are devices that reach down, make use of these more counterintuitive ideas in quantum mechanics and and make use of them. And we're going to see in the coming decades a, a, a huge array of these new technologies that, uh, you know, would have seemed like magic a few decades ago. And some of them do exist now. I think that's the important thing, that there are primitive versions yeah. of these that do exist. Yeah, these are not just, you know, pie-in-the-sky ideas. Absolutely. Already, we, you know, there's a lot of research going on to develop quantum computers. We're not there yet. We don't have a quantum, uh, fully working quantum computer that can solve problems much more quickly than the most powerful supercomputer of, of the normal type that we use today. They don't... Well, they're starting to be developed. I mean, I think they're moving more quickly than many people thought. They're certainly thinking quantum teleportation, quantum entanglement is being used in encrypting, in in, in communication ideas. So, yeah, these are not... We're getting to the point that we know the steps that we need to take to to bring them to fruition. So it's not going to be... They're not going to be that far off. Well, I'm sure that's one of those things where I feel that it's it's such a it's very difficult to, sometimes because newspaper articles always make it sound so it's so weird. No one knows what to do with it or how seriously to take it. But it's a it's a good area to mm. watch, I think. So I want to come to the, the the last chapter in your book is on honesty and doubt. And so I've just reread Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted oh. World, which was a brilliant exposition of yeah. um, you know explores why people believe pseudoscience, why you know how we know anything about science, and then sort of tend the last two chapters kind of tend into what happens if you have a population that doesn't know how to answer the question, what would it take to prove me wrong? And he really, I think that is a critical thing. Like you have to know the answer to the question, what would it take to convince me I'm wrong? What evidence? Because if there isn't any, then you're in the world of dogma. But you talk about, you know, honesty and doubt here. And I have to ask the semi-political question, you know, the world at the moment, a lot of scientists struggle with some of the way it works because they're like, can't you just be reasonable? And of course, all humans think they're the ones who are reasonable. But how how are we doing on honesty and doubt in society? And how what can science feed into this? I I think... It may be one of the very few silver linings that come out of the horrible pandemic that we're still living in today, in that society really has understood the importance of of scientific data, of evidence, of of, of uncertainty in, in a way that probably many people weren't aware of before. We have a long way to go. And and if you look on social media, when everything's black and white and, and everyone's shouting at everyone else and there's, you know, and, and the reasonable person in the middle, who's probably not the person who shouts loudly on Twitter, saying, hang on a minute, you've got a point and you've got a point. Let's try and find the nuance, which is the way, you know, scientists behave. I think we still have a long way to go. But these lessons, I think we are starting to get, get across, you know, that even politicians 
who would who would never in the past be prepared to admit they've made a mistake because they're relying on scientific advice particularly where it comes to sort of public health policies for example surrounding the pandemic are starting to acknowledge that you know when you have an incomplete picture as is almost always the case in science you know you have to express uncertainty and doubt you cannot be certain and you have to be prepared to change your mind in the light of new evidence and you have to admit that you're wrong i think so those ideas which i i, I touch on in that fast uh, last chapter of the book very much as you say prophetically what Carl Sagan wrote about in Demon Haunted World, one of my favourite all-time books. But today, with social media, with all the misinformation, with the deluge of data that we're all bombarded with, and conspiracy theories and so on, more than ever, I think we need probably to get across to wider society all these aspects of the scientific method that, that, that are so important to how we do science and maybe apply them a bit more to everyday life as well. And also that it's a strength. I think one of the problems is that people see it as a weakness, admitting you're wrong. And actually, if you have, if you had a good reason for thinking it, and now so you've got some new evidence and you change your mind, that's 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 a good thing to do. And right. you know, we need to recognise that when it happens. Yeah, <laughs> it's no it's no embarrassment to say that you were wrong because that's how we learn. That's how we we develop our understanding by by changing our view in the light of new evidence. I think it's a lovely example of that, actually, because when the uh, Higgs boson was discovered, you know, seen as the final sort of jigsaw piece improving the standard model was correct. There was there was definitely a subset of physicists who were really sad because it meant they'd been right. Yes, right. Oh, okay. Much more interesting (laughs) if we were wrong, because that means new things to discover, more Nobel Prizes all round. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, yes, it was, it was great. I loved seeing it. Okay, right. We're going to move to some audience questions. I'm not sure they've not all got names. So the, these first, first ones anonymous. So this is a lovely little mental image for everyone. One day, Jim, it says you're in your kitchen having a cup of tea, and you give your teapot a polish, and out pops the science genie, and he offers you the gift of one answer to any unanswered question in physics, and he'll show you the working. What question would you choose to have answered? Well, I, th- I think, you know, what is dark matter made of is something that I'm probably happy to wait for. I suspect it's going to be what we touched on earlier. What is the correct interpretation of quantum mechanics? And of course, that that relies on the fact that, you know, one believes there is a correct interpretation, that all others are wrong. But I think you know, either there are parallel universes or there aren't. You know, either there's a quantum field pervading the universe or there isn't. Either what we call the wave function collapses spontaneously or it doesn't. So I think there is a way of explaining the weirdness of quantum mechanics. I'd like to know how the real world does it. Brilliant. OK, and next one also from someone anonymous. So does does God play dice? So that's a famous quote from Einstein. And how does God playing dice link to the uncertainty principle, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? Well, Einstein used that quote. I mean, Einstein wasn't, you know, I think he was probably he was spiritual, but I don't think he was particularly religious in, in the traditional sense. What he meant was, is there true randomness what we, we in physics we call indeterminacy down at the the the, the tiniest layers levels of of, of building blocks of, of reality the uncertainty principle developed by Werner Heisenberg suggests that once you get down to the quantum level things become fuzzy you can't 
control them. You cannot know where a particle is at, at a precise moment in time and how fast it's moving, for example. So there's there's an inherent uncertainty that is not to do with the clumsiness of our experiments to try and pin that particle down. It really is in, indeterminate. There really is this, this built-in fuzziness. Einstein didn't like that. Einstein didn't like the idea that there was randomness built in at the core of quantum mechanics. And he, and he was arguing that God doesn't play dice, that there isn't this, right? There, you know, if, if you think there's fuzziness, you just haven't looked deep enough. If you look deeper, you'll find some deeper level of reality where everything is precise and makes sense. And all, you know, right to the end of his life, Einstein wouldn't accept those aspects of, of, of quantum mechanics. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't denying that quantum mechanics was a powerful and correct theory, but he felt to some extent it wasn't, complete well and i think you you say in the book that in the uncertainty principle that they there's a difference between not being that particle not having a position and us not knowing what the position is so just explain that one a little bit because i think that might come as a surprise to some people yeah so uh, what quantum mechanics ultimately is about is it tells us it gives us predictions about what we will find what we will see when we make a measurement, when we do an experiment, you know, you, you can do all the maths you want. At the end of it comes a number which says, if you look over there, there's a 20% chance you'll find the particle that you've been studying. It's going to be in that region of space. So quantum mechanics makes predictions about the results of measurement. When you do the measurement, there are different ways of looking at you know, what it's telling you. Did that particle, you know, before you looked, was it really spread out as a probability you know, in, inside a box somewhere. And, and uh, uh, when you looked, you forced it to make up its mind where it's going to be. Or the more common sense explanation would be, well, it was somewhere we just didn't know. Well, quantum mechanics says, no, it's, it's, it's more than that. But this comes back to, again, the need for, for an, uh, you know, a, an interpretation that is the correct interpretation of quantum mechanics, because the standard view is that it's not the clumsiness of our measuring techniques that don't allow us to find out how fast an electron's going and where it is at the same time to infinite accuracy, that electron really doesn't have a definite position and momentum until you measure it. And you measure its position, you find out where it is. If you want to measure its momentum, you find out how fast it's going. But you can't do the same measurements at the same time. But there are other ways of explaining quantum mechanics. There's, there's, a, there's a version uh, due to an American British physicist, David Bohm, which says that no, the electron does have a definite position and momentum. It's just that we can't ever know it precisely. You know, we can, we can never pin it down. It's, it's just inherently impossible for us to know that. So, I, and, and that, that was Einstein's view. So, so I, I think that argument about is, is reality deterministic or indeterministic? Is there fuzziness inherently there? Or is that fuzziness just because of our inability to measure precisely? That is still an open question. And that's part of what bugs me so much about quantum mechanics, even though the maths work so beautifully. It is, it, is quite, it is quite annoying not to know the answer to that question. We've got a much more pragmatic question here, someone who's got their eye on the current world. And they want to know, no name, anonymous again, what can theoretical physics do to advance the current fight against COVID? Do, do theoretical physicists have, have a role to play in all of this? I, I, I certainly in, in, in trying to, to, to 
the fight against COVID is, is multifaceted. There's developing the uh, a vaccine, there's studying the structure of the virus, there's the, the epidemiology, there's doing this, the, the, the modelling statistics of how it spreads. Physicists, they're not at the forefront. You know, the, the vaccinologists and immunologists and epidemiologists are the people who are doing the, you know, the, the main work. But like so many areas of modern science and technology, it's very interdisciplinary. People coming from lots of different areas. Uh, certainly, for example, uh, the writing computer codes, doing the mathematical modelling involves lots of different areas. It involves maths and physics and computer science and engineering. For example... You mentioned at the start, I, I present Life Scientific on, on Radio 4. Well, my, my, my guest last week w- was, was studying how the virus is transmitted in the air. Uh, and so, so Kath Noakes, um, she's, uh, uh, her background is fluid mechanics, right? Fluid mechanics involves equations that we use in physics. Uh, they also happen to be equations that are used in, in finance, for example, predicting the, the, the stock market. But these are equations that we use in physics that are being used to talk, to show how air circulates inside a building and therefore how well ventilated the building is to prevent transmission of the virus through what's called aerosols, just through you know breathing in air that some an infected person has, has breathed out. So even that transmission of the virus can be studied using equations taken from physics. And I think a lot of one other thing I've certainly seen is that people are joining in with projects. You know, in academia, you have that freedom to go, oh, well, I can help with that bit. Maybe it's not a theoretical physics project, but I can I can join in with this. And I've certainly heard colleagues in my department saying, oh, well, I'm doing this thing. I don't, you know, it's quite interesting. Mm. I can do it. It's not my thing, but I can help out. There's a so lot of commonality. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's there's a lot of, you know, the scientific method is important. Uh, having a numerate background, you know, uh, computing skills, being able to, 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 to solve equations, do probability statistics all that stuff that is, that is important for example in epidemiology well those are skills mathematical skills that all scientists are, are, are trained in and so in that sense we can cross from one field to another and I think that brings in fresh perspectives and sometimes that can be very useful compared with you know a group that's siloed and only thinking about the problem from their own point of view. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Well, we've got someone here who is very excited about quantum teleportation. How would that work? Right. Well, quantum teleportation relies on this more fundamental idea of quantum entanglement, that you can have two particles that were together at some point in the past that we, we say are quantum entangled. So they are basically treated as a single system uh, as far as the mathematics of quantum mechanics are concerned, such that 
what you do to one can give you information about the other that it didn't have before. Uh, you're forcing it to make up its mind. If the two particles, for example, are spinning, one spinning clockwise and one spinning anticlockwise, well, you know if you measure the, the clockwise one, well, the other one must have been anticlockwise all, all the time. But in quantum mechanics, particles can spin clockwise and anticlockwise at the same time. And don't even try to imagine, I'm just using words in the English language to try and convey something complicated called quantum spin. But if this particle spinning clockwise and anticlockwise, so is the other one. And when you measure this one, you force it to choose one direction or another because you don't ever see particles spinning both ways at once by forcing it to choose the other one is instantaneously instantaneously also forced to choose the other direction of spin and it's that idea of quantum entanglement that we can use in teleportation because it's a means of of sending information from one point to another now it's not going to be completely it's not going to be like you know uh, star trek and and the, and the transporter room and you know beaming down up and down from, from the enterprise the to whole planets. audience just went oh i know <laughs> i mean in principle it's not impossible you'd have to have all the raw material that would make up a human being in the other place because you're not sending the material the atoms of your body down there you're just sending the information about how they're constructed and you can use quantum entanglement to do that but given that we're made of trillions and trillions of atoms and and the the, the information of how they're they're fitted together is is so vast you know there's lots of zeros involved whatever calculation you do you know it's is as, as good as impossible to be able to do that but down at single particle level yes we can quantum teleport information because essentially down at the quantum particle level information is everything you know particles are identical uh, and and so you don't have to transmit the particle you just transmit the information of the property of one such that it endows the other one with that property and it's as though you've moved this particle across well never uh, anyone who says physics are spoil sports there you go they build up these fantastic ideas that might be so exciting and then they tell you they can only do it with one particle rubbish (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay so um, another question here Uh, what misconception about physics and in particular quantum mechanics do you encounter which you would most like to change oh um I think it's probably the misconception among my fellow physicists that um, um, we don't have to worry about what quantum mechanics means. I, I, again, it's, it's back to my, my hobby horse that, that physicists seem to be quite happy to use quantum mechanics. I mean, I, 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 in no way, I should say, in no way do I want to dis- disparage engineers here, but there's a distinction between science and engineering, which is that science develops the knowledge and engineering puts that knowledge to use right and and you know you can argue that you know putting it to use is far more important than just developing it and sitting down knowing stuff but a a lot of quantum mechanics and when physicists look at quantum mechanics they treat it like engineering as well it works it's fine let's just use it for me as a physicist that's not enough and and the misconception i have is that you know physicists you should really be thinking about what this means it's not enough just to say well it works get on with it and in that sense i i I follow in einstein's footsteps which are quite nice footsteps to follow in 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 really wanting us to understand the meaning of quantum mechanics rather than just using it well, perhaps on that, just I'm going to step away from the audience questions for a second, because one thing you, you wrote about in the book is uh, that Einstein wrote a booklet 
explaining general relativity yes. um, that he then modified. And I, I, I don't think I, I, I might have heard he'd written it, but I didn't realise it had been this kind of continually revised thing. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I hadn't uh, appreciated it until recently. Um, it's, it's called the theories of, of, of special and general relativity. So uh, Einstein, so he had two theories. Special relativity he developed in 1905. So that's the, the one that says nothing fast, travels faster than light, E equals MC squared, all that business. His general theory of relativity is his theory of gravity, which replaces Newton's law of gravity. But together, you know, they, 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 that's Einstein's two theories of relativity. And within a year or so of him publishing his general relativity papers, he wrote this book, which is essentially almost a popular science book. You know, it's, it's, it's non-technical. It came out during the First World War. It came out in German. It was quickly translated in, into English. And usually, you know, with, with books, particularly in, in science where a field develops and, and uh, gets modified and, and added to, later editions of the book tend to, to have be updated. With this one, Einstein didn't update the, the, the main text. What he did was add appendices at the end. And it goes all the way up to appendix number five, which for me is is, is the famous one, the beautiful one, um, which he, he actually added just, I think, a year before he died in the mid-50s. And in it, he talks about what space-time really is, that space-time isn't, you know, space isn't just where stuff happens and time goes by. It's, it is what, you know, the gravitational field, which is, you know, the... the, the the, the region of of space where matter interacts with other matter and matter tells other you know objects how to move einstein explains how the gravitational field is space time without gravity there would be no space time which is not the way we, we we learn we think we have space we have time and then put stuff in it right and that stuff interacts gravitationally einstein says no you can't have space and time without gravity you can't have a gravitational field without it giving us space and time. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm really not doing it justice here, but that, that fifth appendix of Einstein's book I, I, is, is absolutely wonderful. And I, not enough people know about it, I think. So <laughs> I, I was trying to sort of well, plug it, it in my book. Presumably, after people have read your book, they can, they, they can go and look for it and, and find a modern... I think yes. it's really... And just as a historical... I love the idea of adding appendices because in a way that's far more honest, isn't it? Rather than saying, oh, that's what I meant all along. Yeah, exactly. That's how it comes out. But it's actually, oh, well, now I think something different, actually. Yeah, here's a better um, way of saying what I said earlier, which you can yeah. still see. And I don't, I'm not ashamed of that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that should be a general thing for editions of books. I think that'd be great. And um, so off the back of that, there's a question here about what would you recommend to get children and teenagers interested in physics uh, well i would probably say read helen chersky's book storm in a teacup <laughs> but, uh, when, no, not I, necessary <laughs> no i i think I, I'm, I'm i'm not just trying to flatter you her i think you know in a sense there's the exciting stuff in in physics you know the quantum mechanics and relativity and black holes and and entanglements and, and all that stuff and the stuff sort of I talk about in my book which is all very fascinating but it is very esoteric and it is very far removed from everyday life I think the sorts of examples in the books that you've written show that there's there's a fascination there's there's a beauty in what we might otherwise think is mundane and and it's not the sort of you know physics you know with the physics that we do at school I think it's a lot better now and and uh, you know physics teachers uh, you know are, are having to find novel ways of teaching what might be a boring subject and bring it alive and that's what a good 
teacher, never mind physics, any any subject, you know, if uh, invariably, if you know, when I certainly when I meet other physicists, you know, if they've done well in physics and gone on to a career in physics and say, how did it all start? Well, I had a good physics teacher. Uh, and, and likewise, those who've been turned off by science say, well, you know, I didn't have a very good science teacher and that so I didn't find it very interesting. So I think it's how do you inspire them? Well, you find the examples that they can, you know, feel and touch and experiments that they can do that show how beautiful and fascinating physics is, because it is fascinating. You don't have to go jump into a black hole to find something fascinating in physics. You know, it's all around us. Just, you know, the, I, I, I wrote something recently about um, how rainbows form, you know, and it's, you know, then the light going, sunlight going through a raindrop and refracting and total internal reflection coming back again and, and the angles and so on. And, and if you were floating in the sky, you wouldn't see just an arc rainbow. You'd see a whole circle. Um, there's beauty and fascination all around us that physics can help us understand uh, we just need to find those examples that can inspire. And I think not being afraid to run away from them. There's this thing where people sort of assume, oh, you know, kids ask questions and people sort of go, oh, I don't, oh, oh. Um, and they either, you know, maybe they don't know the answer, but they kind of hide it. And there's two things in there. One is that um, those questions that kids ask, they're the good ones. Mm, mm. Like adults have this thing that I see that, you know, like you're wandering somewhere, maybe you're in the bath and a thought occurs to you and you go, oh, I wonder why that is. And then as an adult, people are like, shut it down. Yeah. haven't got time to do that. I'm too busy doing. And those questions are the good ones. Um, mm. But also not being afraid to try it out. Oh, I don't know. Let's find out. And yeah, I think this yeah. idea that physics is this kind of, un, which your book goes a long way to sort of disabuse people of, but the idea it's, it, it's either right or wrong and either you know or you don't know. And this idea of, oh, well, I don't know. Let's, let's poke it a bit. Don't do that if it's got sharp teeth. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. poke it a bit and find out. <laughs> be, be, being curious about the world. I mean, you know, na- we're all naturally born, natural born scientists. You know, you know, children are curious. They want to ask the why questions. And sadly for most people, you know, the, the everyday world and the, and the pressures of everyday life take over and they, that, curiosity is dampened down it's deadened and you know and you you stop asking questions because you're too busy thinking about other things and it's maintaining that curiosity you know you and I and scientists you know we are those lucky ones who didn't stop being curious we wanted to carry on that curiosity about the world around us and and it's that keeping that going keeping the you know keep asking questions and I think it's easier now you know when when you know kids ask teachers or ask their parents you know why is this why is that there are resources, you know, we do have the internet and there are places you can go to find out answers to it. You can't, you don't need to be just fobbed off and say, oh, I don't know, go away and do something else. <laughs> well, we've got another another question from an audience member here who is impressed with your support for philosophy Good. and <laughs> mentions this quote from uh, AC Grayling, which is, suppose you have a physicist and a sociologist standing at the side of a field observing what's going on on the field. The physicist describes it using mass and velocity and frequency of radiation, all that kind of thing. The sociology describes it by saying it's a rugby match. How How do you think physicists and scientists in general how are we doing at accepting other fields of knowledge and other perspectives on the world? Because this is something where you do get people say, oh, I know physics, I know everything. And yeah. there's different fields of everything, right? How does all of that fit together? I, I, I think it's, it's uh, sadly, and I, th- I think there are still physicists who, who, who think this way, that everything can be reduced. You know, that uh, um, sociology, human behaviour, well, ultimately, that's down to, you know, individual humans and how our brains work. There's really ultimately psychology, which is really ultimately 
biology and biochemistry, which is ultimately chemistry, which is basically physics. You know, so everything can be explained by physics. And of course, that's complete nonsense. You know, when physicists talk about a theory of everything, they don't mean a theory that explains the rules of rugby. All right. They don't explain love. And, 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 and so, yeah, I, I think different areas of science, different fields, of, they are not a hierarchy. They're not one is not reducible to the other. Certainly, if we want to try and understand what is the secret of life, you know, what is the difference between in, uh, living matter and inanimate matter? Well, ultimately, there's no magic. Ultimately, if you do want to break it down and reduce it down, it, is, it comes down to physics and chemistry. It, there can't be anything else. But that doesn't mean physics and chemistry is enough to explain the more complex behavior, certainly of, you know, the complexity of human behavior is, is ridiculous. I mean, even in physics, you don't need to understand the standard model to fix your washing machine, right? You don't need to understand that your washing machine is ultimately made of quarks and electrons. That's not going to help you at all. So even within physics, there isn't this hierarchy, let alone once you spread out to other, other areas of science. And yet in emergent behaviour, the idea that it, it, you can't necessarily predict what large collections of things will do. Mm. And we've got another question here that I'm going to ask because I don't know what it means, but maybe you do. And it's, can you explain E8 theory? Letter E in the number eight. Oh, OK. So E8 theory, I think, refers to something called supergravity. I'm not an expert in it, but I think... And I may be completely wrong. Some keep keep checking the the, the comments coming up because Jim's talking a load of nonsense. But I think you know, supergravity was an idea that was around in the eighties, and it was a candidate idea towards a theory of everything. Uh, at the moment, you know, we, we've got the the main the, the main candidate is superstring theory. There's another uh, area called uh, loop quantum gravity. Uh, a future guest on uh, Intelligent Squared, Carlo Rovelli, um, is, is a proponent of and in fact developed himself. But I think E8 refers to another version. It's a highly mathematical theory, multi-dimensions, that is, is a way of unifying essentially quantum mechanics and, and relativity theory. But I may be talking complete rubbish here. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the answer is it's complicated and it's, highly mathematical. It's, it's complicated, yes, indeed. And probably hasn't come up with a falsifiable experiment <laughs> hypothesis quite, yet. Quite. So there's one one here about the quantum computers. Everyone's interested in the quantum computers. And and the way it's phrased is when will or will it the power of a quantum computer excel and surpass blockchain technology? Now I think those are two slightly separate things, mm. but in terms of time scales for quantum computers, you said in the future, yeah. Have you got a feel for how far in the future we're talking? Uh, well, you know, you talk to some people, and, and uh, you know, certainly companies like like uh, Google are already would say, you know, we've reached a threshold in developing quantum computers, but there are still hurdles to to to, to be got over to to build a, a workable quantum computer. It's very difficult because you know, in order for a quantum computer to reach down and make use of of the properties of the quantum world, which are very ephemeral, they're very delicate, they disappear very quickly. You know, how, how do you get your the in, in innards of this machine to behave quantum mechanically and yet still give you sensible answers? But we are getting there. I would say a prediction would be 10, 20 years from now, we would have workable quantum computers that can solve certain they're not going to replace our laptops they're not going to replace our standard computers but they're going to be able to solve certain tasks much more effectively efficiently and and quickly 
than the most powerful computers we have. But it's only in, in certain areas, certain tasks. We, you know, there's the difficulty of building a quantum computer, then there's, then there's finding uses for it. We have lots of uses lined up, uh, particularly modeling quantum effects, uh, uh, complicated processes in chemistry, for example, that require quantum mechanics. Uh, a quantum computer is needed to simulate the quantum world. And, and I think we'll get there in the next decade or two. So watch this space and that and yes, and you can you can come back in 10 years and tell him whether he was right or he was wrong. The world is doing the experiment. And um, so last question, we're going to pick a slightly technical one, but I think it opens the door into a lot of the things that you talk about in the book. And it is how do you apply thermodynamics to the quantum field? So we've got these, you said these, these are two quite separate ways of thinking mm, of the mm, world. Mm. How, how do you knit them together? What, one of the, the, the big puzzles in quantum mechanics is how do you get from the quantum world to the classical world or another way of saying it you know when stuff is behaving quantum mechanically particles being in two places at once and yet when you make a measurement you don't see particles being in two places you see them in one place or the other so what has happened when you interacted with the particle what has happened where has all the quantumness gone and to put it very crudely, there's Have an you area... written that novel yet? There should be a book called that, right? Where has all the quantumness gone? Where has all the gone? quantumness gone? That should be yes, the exactly. great, great work of literature of this century. <laughs> Someone Absolutely. needs to write that. <laughs> or write a song with that title. Yeah. <laughs> um, but put it very crudely, a, a quantum system that's behaving quantum mechanically will carry on doing this weird stuff all the time it's in isolation. Once it's embedded within a, a larger environment, that the, the, its quantum properties leak out into, into its surroundings, what's called decoherence, uh, and it starts behaving in a non-crazy way. And in a sense, the way a quantum system decoheres is similar to the way a hot object loses, dissipates its heat to its colder surroundings. So quantum thermodynamics is really about trying to understand how a quantum system interacts with its environment, even when there isn't an experimentalist doing a measurement, sticking a Geiger counter at it, just, you know, a quantum system, you know, in, in the air somewhere, you know, a particle in, bumping into air molecules. How does it lose its quantum behavior? And there are parallels between how a hot object loses its heat. So I think that that's the starting Point. And quantum thermodynamics is all about how we shouldn't treat quantum systems in isolation. In the real world, they're always embedded in some surrounding. Brilliant. So that was everyone that is now, I, I want to say, had their mind filled with interesting ideas. That's the idea. Even if you didn't follow all of these ideas, I think that's what I'm going to keep saying because I think it's important that even if you don't remember every single thing that Jim has said, although obviously you should, just I don't feel remember how everything I've said. <laughs> I think is a useful thing. Okay, we are, we are out of time. We're going to have to finish there. So thank you very much, Jim. Thank you very much to the audience and Intelligence Squared for hosting this. And I'm going to hand back to Hannah to wrap up.